Yeah. I'm Lin-Manuel Miranda. I'm Celia Kina-Bolter. This is Queen Leslie. I'm Robin DeJesus. I'm Aaron Davey. Hi, this is Ellen Marie Marsh. I'm LaShawn. I'm Telly Leung. Hi, I'm Eden Espinosa. I'm Laura Osnes. I'm Katie Finnerin. Hi, I'm Tanya Pinkins. I'm Karen Olivo, and you are listening to the Theater People Podcast. Hello, fellow theater people. Welcome to the Theater People Podcast. I'm Patrick Hines, your host. Today, we're bringing you sort of a mini-episode. Rather than focusing on an individual and their career, today we're focusing on the terrific new play, Whirl Inside a Loop, which is now running at Second Stage. The show was written by Sherry Renee Scott and Dick Scanlon. It was co-directed by Michael Mayer and Dick Scanlon. And these are the same creative team behind Everyday Rapture, which, as some of you know, may be my favorite show of all time. The play is very loosely based on Sherry Renee Scott and Dick Scanlon's experience working at a prison with inmates on monologues that tell their own personal stories. Mike and I saw the play last week and we were completely blown away by it, so we were really grateful that Michael and Dick were able to make time to speak to us about it. So without any further ado, here's our conversation. Thank you so much for doing this. Welcome to the Theater People Podcast. Welcome back to the podcast, Mr. Mayor. Great to be back. <laughs> Great to be a first-timer. I, we, me and my producer Mike just saw World Inside a Loop uh, a couple nights ago. Completely blown away by it. Thank so congratulations on the, on, the, on the fantasticness of the show. Thank you. Um, can I start with you, Mr. Scanlon? Sure, of course. Um, so the, the, the show is sort of loosely based on a real thing that Mm -hmm. you and Sherry Renee Scott did, Mm -hmm. which was go to a prison and work with inmates to sort of teach them how to tell their stories. Correct. In 2011, I, during, actually in 2010, during Tech for Everyday Rapture on Broadway, I had dinner with a childhood friend of mine, Sean McNesby Fisher, and she was volunteering at a men's uh, prison teaching improv comedy. And she was just completely on fire. She was so jazzed and transformed and firing on all cylinders And I found in the days that followed, I kept thinking about her experience and how exciting it seemed. Uh, And sometime later, I got the idea that I'd like to go observe. So um, I actually suggested to Sherry in the fall of 2010, how would you feel about going up for a day and just watching my friend teach improv comedy to these convicted felons? And she was way into it. It just sounded intriguing. And when my friend brought it to her guys and said these guys are going to come they're going to volunteer they're going to observe uh she told them a bit about our background and they revealed to her that they'd always wanted to do personal narrative work but the prison wouldn't let them because it was too close to therapy too volatile too volatile as we say in the show yeah and yeah and arts therapists aren't trained arts facilitators aren't trained therapists so but they thought perhaps because sherry and i had done it at such a high level the program Rehabilitation Through the Arts would make an exception, and they did. So they approved a one-day master class sort of thing, and we went up and taught that, and it was a six-hour class, 13 guys. Uh, It was astonishing. It was very similar energetically to how the volunteer experiences it in the play. And at the end of the day, they asked us if we could come back weekly and build that into a show. So for the next four months, we went up initially once a week, we would do three three-hour classes in a day, and then near the showtime, because doing a show is doing a show, whether it's Broadway or prison, um, <laughs> we would go twice a week. Um, so we spent a lot of time there. 
Um, okay, so in the play, in the world of Warlands at a, a Loop, when the volunteer goes to the prison for the first time, she is surprised by a lot of things. Mm-hmm. She's surprised to find out that the men that she's working with are convicted murderers. She's surprised to find out that there won't be a guard in the room with her. Mm-hmm. What was your first day like working with the actual inmates? Well, it was, it was slightly different because remember I had a friend who had volunteered. Yeah. So the idea that there'd be no guard in the room with us, which is exactly what it's like, um, that I knew going in. Uh, the, uh, let's see, the, the sort of, here's what wasn't surprising and here's what was. As I walked down the halls of the prison, before we got to the school area, which is a whole section of the prison, I kept thinking, I, I've been here before. This is so familiar to me. And then I realized it was like junior high, you know, <laughs> in, in the most profound sense, like trapped with dangerous people yeah. in, in a place I don't want to be. That It felt like a prison sentence. It really did. It's wow. like emotionally. What startled me was the incredible um, facility with language, the, in some cases, acting ability, the humor, and the unbelievable commitment to authenticity in the creative process. That blew me away. In the, in the world of Warland Side of Loop, the, the, it's like a maximum security prison, mm-hmm. right? And it was, you guys went to a... Medium security prison. Okay. There are, there are fewer and fewer medium security prisons in New York uh, State. Medium security prisons are... You're, no one is really sentenced to a medium security prison. It's usually guys who've been in max joints for many years... And they've worked by staying sober, by not getting into fights, by educating themselves to be transferred to a medium security prison. If maximum security prison is like a 10 in terms of, you know, prisoniness, mm-hmm. mediums are like an 8. Okay. And then mm-hmm. there's the country club prisons that are like a 3. Right. So it was a little bit loose. You're like a maximum, uh, max joint would never allow us to do nine hours of classes in a day. They would never allow us to spend that much time. They would probably strip search us. We were always searched going in and, and metal detected and everything. But it wasn't, we didn't have to disrobe, things mm-hmm. like that. So it was a little bit laxer. What would you say? Um, what would you say was like the biggest surprise for you working with these inmates? Well, um, I was sort of astonished to learn what should have been obvious to me before I went, which is that when everything is taken away from you, uh, the things that remain are number one, your imagination. No one can take it away from you, and everybody is free in the realm of the imagination. Everybody has a liberty. Uh, and, and so it was astonishing to me how imaginative the guys were. And secondly, language, how, you know, when you have a set uniform you have to wear and a prescribed code of conduct, how you speak, how you express yourself becomes a way of defining who you are. Uh, and, uh, I mean, look, you see it in contemporary music now, right? It's, it's part of what has created, you know, hip-hop, which yeah. is obviously the, the music of our era, pop music of our era. Um, but in prison, that takes on a whole new resonance because there's so many ways in which they're no more than a number. They're, they're virtually property of the state. But when they speak, they are themselves. Mm-hmm. And as someone who writes and who grew up, you know, obsessed with My Fair Lady and the power of the spoken word, I kept thinking of Henry Higgins, you know, great monologue to Eliza in Act One about what, what language does, because I was seeing it in a prison in a very different context, but they were living it, and it uh-huh. moved me deeply. And to be clear, you went there to work on a show for them, a show that would be done at the prison, mm-hmm. and there was no real thought in the beginning that you guys would be working on something that would maybe go for a commercial run. We, yes, we, look, the first day was so mind-blowing. 
you know. And I think in our in our mind, the first day, I was so intrigued by my friend's experience and and how it was transforming her life. I sort of had an idea to write something about a woman whose life is transformed, not really about the guys mm-hmm. per se, and not really about the issues at all. Because I never, I never understood how the issues that whirl inside a, a loop explores race, forgiveness. You know, otherness are, you know, do we believe that people can change or not? I did not understand how they were defining my life and limiting me as a person until I lived through that experience and then later wrote about it. So I would have had, I wouldn't have had the consciousness to know uh-huh. that I wanted to write about that. Very early on, Sherry and I were aware that we were living through something that felt enormous. And I think my friends, like Michael, I sort of expressed that to them. But we also understood that we wanted to fully have the experience. So we sort of said to ourselves, let's just live it. And if we ever write something about it, we write something about it. And if we don't, it was still the most valuable time we could have ever spent because it changes as people. Mm -hmm. So that's what we did. And Mm -hmm. we began working on the play in the fall of 2013, so about two years after we volunteered. And it's interesting because one of the, I guess the, Sherry's character in the in the play, the volunteer, it's different than that. Sherry, it, her character, the volunteer, sort of has her eyes on writing a play, sort of like from the jump, right? But almost, it, it, almost. she almost. goes she goes in for another reason. Yes, and yes. The, but but early on, because she's getting all this feedback from people in her life, of they're so intrigued, which actually was we couldn't believe how obsessed people were with this. I was experience. just going to say that those of us on the outside knew that this was going to become something, probably before you guys did, because of the way you were talking about the experience and the fact that you two went together and were doing this together. It just seemed inevitable, I think. I remember a breakfast with Michael probably six months to a year. We'd stopped, but I remember saying, I'd like... I'm scared to write something about this, but I want to write something about it because it, to me, it, it asks a lot of unanswerable questions. Like what? Well, it asks the question, I mean, the basic question of, you know, can, can you prove you're uh, rehabilitated or can you only prove you're not? Are you willing to believe that somebody who's done something awful, whether it's a murderer in a prison or someone in your life or yourself, Something awful, there's all kinds of murders, there's all kinds of crimes, can also be someone who's capable of great love and great goodness and great uh, generativeness and generosity. That's right, it's that duality. And, And if you do believe that people can be both, how do you reconcile that on a daily basis? How do you love people who've really hurt you? How do you love yourself when you've seen the damage you've caused in other people's lives, including your own. Um, And then, of course, you can apply that very specifically to the criminal justice system, but I think it's a much larger human question, and I think think politics is always personal, and prison reform, you know, we talk about it as prison reform, but the first thing we have to define is what do we believe is possible with people in general, including ourselves, because if we get clear on that, it will inform... What, how we think prisoners should be treated. Michael, as you were, before you came on as the director and you were hearing them talk about it, what, specific, like, what things were you hearing that, that were making the wheels turn in your head that you thought they might, they might do something with this? Well, it, it, everything that Dick was saying about how transformative the experience was. I also know that um, 
where Dick and Sherry were as a creative force, having had the, the great privilege of working with them on Everyday Rapture. Which and anybody who listens to the show knows is my favorite show ever to be written, ever, ever, <laughs> ever, 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 ever. Well, you've got good taste. <laughs> but, um, but having you know, entered into that process with them well after they had, um, had developed it to a, a really far um, point, um, I think I just, I just knew that, that something really exciting was happening to them. And it just didn't, it never occurred to me that they wouldn't create something out of it. And I kept saying, I said, can I read it? And you were like, not yet, not yet. Um, you really wanted to keep it in a, preserved in, in, in the purity yeah. of their experience. So it wasn't something that was going to be shared. And I completely respected that. Um, so it wasn't until much, much later. It was, what, a year ago? It was last summer. Yeah, it was last summer. It was August, I guess, when I was, um, I was doing, uh, shooting a pilot in New Mexico, and I was flying home to see my mom, who was ill, and I stopped at a layover in Denver where Dick was working on his wonderful um, unsinkable Molly Brown at Denver Theater Center. Um, and he took a break from rehearsals, and we met. We had breakfast at the airport <laughs> and that's when I got um, and, and that's when I, I got um, brought on to, to co-direct with Dick I'm curious about at what point you started talking to the, the inmates about the idea that this might be something that could be done commercially it was very complicated because uh, first of all we, we were very unclear legally what was possible. So we began, we had a very, very private workshop in the fall of 2013. When I say private, there was no presentation. So it was just the actors and the stage manager. Um, and to see if we had sort of, an, as you know, it's an unusual piece. Yeah. And to see if this strange idea we had of these different worlds colliding and constantly flowing so that people were constantly changing characters and you know, tough, big, butch, black guy suddenly becomes a very, very, you know, wealthy female producer yeah. and with a whole different kind of energy. Um, after that, uh, and we, we chose some of the monologues that we had worked with in the, uh, at the prison to become the basis for the prison characters. After that workshop, we were, you know, pretty, pretty excited and thought there's really something here. And uh, so at that point, we engaged a lawyer, someone I've worked with a long time, and sort of basically said, you know, what do you know about the, the so-called Son of Sam laws, which most people perceive as meaning that a, an inmate can't profit off his crime, which is not exactly what the laws mean. And he said, I know they exist, and that's yeah. it, because whoever uses them. And I talked about what we want to do. He said, Dick, I don't even know if the guys have the copyright in their work. It could be that the Department of Corrections has it let me do some legal research and into the Son of Sam laws to figure out how we could ever legally license this material. So that research went on, I think it took him about two months or so, and then we met with him and he sort of talked us through, and the good news was the guys do have the copyright and they talked us through what the Son of Sam laws would mean for us as the licensors. And so we met with the, there were four of our, there were six guys we approached Four of them were out on parole, and I'm in touch with them pretty regularly. So those four we met with all together on a Sunday afternoon at Shikaboom Records and talked them through what we wanted to do, how we wanted to do it, how we would pay them, how we would credit them, how they'd be integrated into the process, etc. The other two were still incarcerated, 
as a volunteer, I'm not supposed to have contact with any of my students. There was someone working at a prison who very kindly facilitated my seeing one of them, and I was able to talk him through and get his approval. The other had been transferred, and I was able to reach out to him through mail and eventually by phone. I set up a phone account. And he was the one of the uh, six who decided not to participate. So we eliminated his character and any work of his, et cetera, and created a new character uh, for the play. Uh, so it was about, you know, it was maybe four or five months after we started working on it. We, we did the first workshop, then we did the legal work, and then we met with them uh, and talked them through uh, what we were asking and what we were offering. And so is everything that that is said by the characters who are the inmates in the play, is that all those stories are real and they belong to actual people that you worked with, or is any there of it invented? Five, there are five monologues in the play that the guys do as, as part of their classwork. There's actually six. One of them Sherry and I wrote. The other five were written by the five contributing writers. Those monologues are all their words, the individual who wrote that monologue. Sherry and I have edited them down, for example, in some cases very little, in some cases there's one monologue in the play that's, I don't know, four or five, maybe four minutes. It was initially about 35 minutes. Oh, wow. So we, you know, we chose sections and focused on this, etc. We, uh, you know, sort of streamlined the language a little bit sometimes, but really just editorial work, you know, not, not authorial work in that, but everything they say as students in the class their retorts, their questions, their relationships with each other, that's all invented. That's okay. not at all based on who those men were in our class. They have their names, but, but all of that is invented to tell the story we're telling. I read... I have one question before I forget. What about Sunnyside's pamphlet? Is that invented? That's okay. It's Sunnyside's pamphlet, which is a pamphlet that the character Sunnyside, Walter Chapman Jr. is his legal name in the play, is presenting to the parole board in a hopes of framing device. device. That's invented. Now we received several pamphlets like that, so we knew sort of how they were structured. Yeah, there's no way that you could. I I mean, you know, it seemed like (laughs) it was based on something real. The structure of it, you know what I mean? I remember being very struck with one of them about the crime because, and it's what he says: at 19, Walter was convicted of murder. And he says nothing else. Right. And that tends to be what a pamphlet does. It doesn't right. say, because of course the parole board has all the gory details. Right. Sorry. Can I ask which monologue you guys, in, you guys wrote? Yes, the shoe story, the, shoe, the salesman. I do want to talk a little bit about the creation of the character of the volunteer. Sure. Um, and I was wondering if it was okay to say this, and then I was reading some interviews that Sherry had given, and she sort of says something similar, because she's sort of... I don't want to say the bad guy. She's the bad guy. No, she's very, she is definitely the bad guy. She's the antagonist. There's no question. And that, you know, um, things evolve. But I can tell you that that began, I mean, really one of the first things Sherry said when we talked about, I sort of had a theatrical vision. I sort of woke up in the middle of the night one night and I literally saw Sherry on stage with six right. black actors. I remember you telling me this. And then suddenly they were changing into white people. It was like I literally saw it. And I was like, oh my God, I can see how this could work. Because Sherry's so particularly white yeah. as a person. <laughs> I mean, just literally her coloring. So I thought just right away visually it was provocative. But when I saw so I brought to Sherry, I said, I think I, have a vi- I think I have a vision. And it would be these different worlds kind of thing. And she said, well, uh, one thing I know for sure is that the character... Base you know, I mean, that, that would be based loosely on me, the everyday rapture character, if yeah. you will. She can't be going into prison because she wants to. It's not interesting. She can't be going in to help, 
to change, to do good, to give back, it's boring. You immediately dislike that person as a character. As much as you admire a person who does that, as a theatrical character, it's dull. And she has to be going in for another reason. Um, and so, and I, you know, I respect Sherry's theatrical instincts. So I was like, well, let's explore that. And then you, you see where we've ended up. Yeah. <laughs> and it's interesting because if, if you know the creative team, of course, is the, is the team behind Everyday Rapture, which I just sort of take as like very like much actually based on her actual life or her actual Probably less than you think everyday rapture. I mean, this far less than you think. This is so fictionalized. But even everyday rapture, much less than you think. Yeah, everyone, everyone seemed to think that just because Sherry was brought up half Mennonite in Kansas, that a ton of everyday rapture was really pulled directly from her life, and it wasn't. Sherry has this really great quote um, that says, if you want people to be interested in your story, you have to make it real and true, but not necessarily factual. Yes. Yeah, no, I mean, that's a definitely sh- something Sherry. And we actually have a lot more t- about that in the play. Yeah. You know, the play gets trimmed and trimmed, the difference between fact and story. But I think, I think it's one of Sherry's extraordinary gifts as a storyteller. I think she's, you know, she's... She's because she has told so many stories eight times a week in front of fifteen hundred people. She's so aware of the pretzels actors have to twist themselves into to try and storytell when the storytelling on the page is not truthful. And she's also aware of how bogged down writers get in facts and details. The truth is not necessarily communicated by facts and how few facts an audience needs. That if, if the information is presented in the right order, you mean that you can very little can be offered and an audience can be completely invested in what's going on. She she really understands in her body the art of storytelling. And you'll see when she's trying to do something that we've written that you can literally see her physically rejecting it. It's not true. She can't it doesn't come out of her. <laughs> it really can't. The other thing is about Sherry that is true from Everyday Rapture that I think has been has really um, informed the way the character of the volunteer was created. Um, and a deep truth of Everyday Rapture is her ambivalence between wanting to be the center. You know, mm-hmm. the world was created for her, and I'm a speck of dust. She really is ambivalent, for that, real about that. Yeah. And so. I don't know, and we've been talking about this, I don't know another performer who would create a role like this right. for themselves. And I think it's because she has this this incredible duality yeah. in her that she doesn't necessarily want to be a paragon of virtue yeah. at the center of something. She's, she's thrilled to be um, part of this ensemble. Well, and it's funny too because I definitely, you know, People like me and our producer Mike are like huge, huge, huge fans of Sherry Renee Scott, and we are leaning over to each other at like moments in the play. We're like, "Wait, did, did I didn't read that on Broadway? Well, did she really do that? Like, you know what I mean? Like, you." And so she allows herself to be. People are going to think this is real, maybe. Right. Absolutely, I think that's true, and I, I, and I think she's aware of that, and I think there's stress associated with that, but. Look, she's very clear that it isn't, right? And there's stuff in the play that's implied about the volunteer and her child and things she's done that are actually somewhat egregious and Mm -hmm. and actually beyond. 
And, you know, her son has seen the show, and she's, he, he's a smart kid, and she's talked to him about the difference between fact and truth, and that this did not happen, and this isn't me, and that's not you. Right. I mean, this is a character. And, you know, unlike in Everyday Rapture, the, the, the character's name was only mentioned once, but when it was, it was Sherry Renee Scott. In, mm-hmm. this, in this play, the character is um, called The Volunteer, and besides being a Broadway actress with a child who does musicals, there's really nothing specific to, you know, uh, Sherry's life per se. Before we get into the directing of it, I'm curious about the casting of it. How did you guys find your actors? Were, Michael, were you involved in I that at all? I was involved with the casting of one actor, okay, which is Chris, and he was the last one we cast. The rest of it, Dick and Sherry did. And what were you looking for in your actors? It was so intuitive. It was, um, you know, I think we wanted a real range of uh, energies because, you know, there's, and I think Michael was very intrigued about this when he came on in terms of they're all dressed largely alike. They're all in orange jumpsuits and how it, it then requires the actor's essence to be the thing that differentiates him from the others. Uh, you know, and because there were six black actors and there's so many perceptions from white audiences, you know, I mean, I, and, and I had worked on Motown, so right. I, I was so, I was part of this huge family because Motown was such a big show of so many people. It was like a village. It really was like a village there. Um, I remember the opening night cards. It was a lot. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it was, I was just so aware of within a, uh, you know, Motown. Obviously, there were other white people who worked at Motown. But it was, it was sort of defined as a black village that we were in. And how within that village, everybody was so comfortable at the incredible range of colors and, and dynamics and essences and strengths and weaknesses and personalities and um, that existed and I wanted to find six actors that really covered that spectrum uh, and then write other characters so they could even blow that up further so that's what we were looking for but it was really intuitive you know there were some guys from Motown that I had been watching that I thought were just I just had a hunch from watching them in small parts and Motown that they were just sort of genius actors which they've turned out to be um, one of them, Ryan Quinn, Sherry yeah. saw in uh, Hudson Valley Shakespeare in a production. She didn't meet him that night. She emailed me saying, I want this guy. and He's in our play. I can see it. And we took him out to lunch on Halloween and told him about what we wanted to do. And he said, look, I don't know you, and I, but I'm, I'm in. Yeah. Um, Derek Baskin, Sherry had worked with on Little Mermaid. Mm-hmm. Um, and she just had a real feeling that Derek, again, very accomplished actor. He's done a lot of things. But she just thought there was, there was a kind of wound inside him that he had never been able to explore on stage a complexity if you will she um, knew Daniel from before too from Little she, Mermaid yeah. he was also in Motown mm-hmm. right so Daniel is an interesting uh, Daniel Watts who's thrilling in the show that was Sherry's suggestion I knew Daniel from Motown I liked Daniel very much but I I didn't have as much insight about Daniel and his potential as Sherry did but you know I was like let's go for it let's do it um, and, you know, from the very first workshop, it was sort of heaven because it wasn't like, well, we keep these three. Mm-hmm. And it was like, we'll keep, they're, they're, ob- they're, they're, they're born for this, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, uh, it's thrilling to see people who've had such diverse careers, many of them in musicals, show up in this really very demanding acting piece and just nail it, mm-hmm. you know. So, the great director, Michael Mayer, when did you come on board? I came on board, as we said, about a year ago. 
Um, I'd heard so much about it without actually hearing anything about it. <laughs> it was part of my consciousness. You know, and Dick and I go way back. We've been friends since we were 16. And oh, really? Yeah, we're both from um, suburban D.C. Yeah. He's from Potomac and I'm from Rockville, Maryland. We were in um, County we Chorus. 15 in the 15 fall. in County Chorus, we you're right. We were best friends when we were 18 when we did West Side Story together. That's right. That is insane. You guys are two of the most accomplished musical theater people of our time. There's something in the water, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> At Rockville Mall. <laughs> that is, um, I had yeah, no idea. Yes, so, yes, so. So we talk, yeah, yeah, we talk, we're in constant communication. So I knew all about it, and yet I didn't know any details until we had this breakfast at the Denver airport. And what was discussed? Well, um, it was a bit of a miracle, actually, because I had texted Michael the day before. It was a day off for me, and I texted him on Sunday and said, by any chance you have a half hour tomorrow to talk about a professional thing, not Molly Brown related. Um, And he texted me and said, I can't believe this. I was just about to text you telling you I have a layover in the Denver airport and asking if you could come join me for breakfast. So um, we talked about, you know... uh, Sherry and I wanted to bring a co-director on and why we thought that would be a good idea, that I think that, you know, we were concerned and, and Carol Rothman Second Sage was concerned that because Sherry and I had both lived the experience and I was co-direct I was directing and co-writing and Sherry was co-writing and acting, she's like, there needs to be someone in the inner, inner, inner circle who didn't live it, who can ask questions that you're not gonna see. And, uh, you know, the only person I was willing to allow in uh, was Michael, because I know that we see things very similarly. We have a very similar aesthetic. We're very comfortable collaborating. There's no ego stuff between us. So I, uh, you know, I said to Carol, I'd be comfortable with inviting Michael into the party in that way. And that's when I texted Michael. So first I explained to him, I think, just the why we why we'd come to this point and then I think I talked to you somewhat about the show itself and I said I, I, I'd send you the script yeah. and you should look at it you know and I was just thinking you were telling me before we started that you were committed to being there every day and then all of a sudden Unless, you had this no, movie come up I'm all, I'm all yours and I said it basically I said I don't even have to read it if you were asking me, Dick, yeah, to do this, I'm true. yours. I'm there. And it was the same story with Everyday Rapture that you. That was different. I just mean that you got it. That you were doing two things at once. Broadway. Oh, the Broadway yeah. version. Yeah. Yeah. During yeah. the during the real the production, we were. I was there. Okay. Yeah. I wasn't. There was no. I wasn't in trying to do in two places at once. <laughs> but in this particular instance, I said, I'm all yours. The only, and they didn't have dates yet. Right. But I said, the that was going to be in the summer. I said, the only thing is that um, I'm trying to get this Seagull film together. And if it happens, it has to happen this summer because it takes place during the summer. And it's exteriors mostly. <laughs> so I said, if that happens, I don't know how available I would be. But it worked out in this miraculous way. The movie happened. Well, the movie happened, which was <laughs> fantastic. But, but it ended up giving me an opportunity to... We did a workshop, mm-hmm. um, four-second stage... And then we did, and then they went away. Sherry and Dick went away and did more writing. Then we did another little mini workshop without actors, just, without us, actors, just us. So this was just work on the script. Um, then we, I participated in the design conversations. I had an instinct when we did the workshop at Second Stage because they had pulled everything out. They were striking a set, and we walked in. And it was 
It was yeah. like this huge empty thing, and I got very excited by that. And I said to Dick, I think this is really, we should just do it in this big empty space. It became, you know, more than that. Um, Christine and Brett and Dick refined that idea beautifully, I think. But it was this impulse of just like strip, strip, strip everything out. So I think I had some influence on that element. And then we, and then we lost an actor because he had another gig. And we auditioned a bunch of guys. And we, we both felt very strongly that Chris was the answer, although he was very, very different from the, the guy who had done it before. Um, and then I went to make my movie. <laughs> and they rehearsed. And then you came back. I came back. I saw a couple designs. I came back. I saw some designs. You'd be in, we were in constant communication. Yes. But I was basically shooting this crazy, this movie on an insane schedule. So I missed all of the rehearsals. Because <laughs> I was gone for six weeks. But there was an amazing aspect to this pr- uh, process because we had costumes from day one. The actors rehearsed in rehearsal clothes that were different col- colors and what they end up in with the exact same styles because the transformation of the costumes is complicated, and we wanted the actors to come up with that on their own. So we basically gave them the same plot of clothes that a prisoner would have. Because the set is relatively simple, we were able to rehearse on stage several days prior to tech. So all the transitions, all those things that eat up two days of tech time, it was all done. And because the props are so simple, we basically had our props from the first week. So we had five days of tech, we were able, and we have no sound design. We have no sound designer. I was going to ask because there is somebody. There's a, a person who looks like a prisoner in a, in a prisoner jumpsuit. He's the assistant ASM. stage manager he's the for real. Ah. He's the real ASM. So there's no sound design. No, there's no sound design. Oh, he's what he's, he's doing is the light. He's running a light board. Okay. Yep. And so really, tech became about Don Holder, our incredible lighting designer. And the lighting plot is actually much more complicated than it appears to be. But because Don is so organized and was so on the same page with us and had done all his homework, he basically did that in two days. So that left us with three days of tech. And what we decided to do, and our actors, God bless them, went along with this. I said, I want to look at these three days as our first week of previews. We have to maximize our Michael. That's what I kept saying. (laughs) Because we have our Michael. Let's bring him in and let's do a run-through as if it's a performance. And then we're going to start changing the show. Before an audience comes in, we're going to start cutting things and read the way you do normally at the end of the first week of previews because we have them for X amount of days and I want to really get the bang out of our buck. And he and it worked. It, the actors were willing to do it was the kookiest they thing. So, they were amazingly they were open. And I know I hadn't been there. I knew them all. I'd met them. I'd worked with them a little bit, but I'd really been like an absent friend, you know, who who came in and suddenly had opinions about things. How did it work? What was your thought when you when you saw the first run through? Well, it was. I, I look. I think it's an astonishing piece. I love it. Um, so much, and I think there were issues of clarity that I felt very strongly about in certain cases, um, and issues of there were not taste exactly, but there was like emotional things. Like the ending was, I had we 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 worked through a lot. I had some ideas about, but it's not like I came in and solved things mm-hmm. or anything. I would just tell Dick what my thoughts were, and. Um, and some, and we'd talk through things, and, and sometimes I'd have a really good idea, sometimes I'd have a bad idea, just like you know any <laughs> yeah. kind of process. But what was amazing um, 
and what I give Dick full credit for is creating an environment with those with with those actors. I mean, Sherry, I already know would trust Dick with her life, mm-hmm. but to take these six actors who are doing really risky work mm-hmm. and they were so open and so willing to try anything and look like idiots in the process and not worry about any kind of judgment. He'd really created a, a safe, safe room mm-hmm. for them. Um, and so for me, it was um, very, it became clear within minutes that it was going to be very easy for me to be completely honest about what my experience was. And in the same way that receiving the script for the first time, not having been a part of any of the writing of it, and hearing it read out loud for the first time when we did that big workshop, I, could, I came to it as a virgin. Mm-hmm. You know, I had my own pure response to it that was not colored by anything because I didn't know anything about it. Uh-huh. And the same thing with the staging. I'd never seen it staged before. Dick had told me about it, and he'd, I'd understood theoretically what he meant, and it was accurate, but I didn't have any experience of it. So the, the, um, the visceral experience of watching something in three dimensions for the first time, um, I could be completely, I was, I was, um, it was brand new for me, mm-hmm. so I could have an instant Response and that's what what it needed because we didn't have that much time. Yeah. So. How much more time did you have, and and how did you get to where the the show ended up now? We had three and a half weeks of previews. I mean, really three weeks because the critics start coming at the end, yeah. the beginning of the fourth week. So we had three weeks of previews, and uh, you know, our last change that we made, which was to the the final scene, mm-hmm. was made the day that we froze the show, which was a day or two before the critics came. So we rehearsed. Uh, every day, I, I mean, it's the only show I've ever done where the, the last day of rehearsal, I'm like, well, this is our final rehearsal. I'm just like, oh, no, please, let's keep rehearsing. Because <laughs> um, it's just that, you know, it's, I haven't been this close with a cast since I did Pageant, and I was in Pageant. Oh, wow. I have not felt, and I've loved a lot of oh. cast, so if cast members of other shows are listening, I love you too, but this is, this is something I've not experienced since I was actually in a show with people. And actually, the first workshop, I would sometimes play the volunteer, and Sherry would be out watching, and we would just switch back and oh, forth wow. because we can sort of do that right. in the early stages, um, and the actors would roll with it. But at any rate, we kept making changes. We kept making cuts, um, trims, restaging things, for, again, for clarity, um, just sort of refining, finessing. Uh, but we used our full rehearsal time. And, you know, and this isn't a show. It isn't like Motown where to make the smallest change takes two hours because, you know, the set things that go on. We could actually, you know, I could come in with a work list of eight things and hit them. Okay. I could, you know. And they were so good about taking them, too. You know, there was yeah. none of this. I've, we've all worked with companies before and wonderful actors and, you know, brilliant award winning performers who. They balk a little bit at when they're in previews, and like you give them some change, and you want to put it in that night, and they don't have time to learn it or whatever. And they, you know, you get you get some attitude coming back. These guys were like, "Bring it on, let's try it." They got so um, they got so jazzed by by change and by what it did to them as a company, the way that they would play off of each other. It was thrilling. Yeah, I mean, I have so much respect for them. It was mind-boggling. 
And what's the plan now? It's running through September, October? When is is there an extension? The show is scheduled to close September 20th. There's a possible extension, but... How much? A week. Yeah, because Invisible Thread comes in. They have to load in and all that stuff. Um, so, uh, so that's the plan. You know, we, we would love for it to have a future life, and we're having all those conversations now. Um, and it just seems ridiculously timely and resonant for where we are. And I think, you know, the show for how I think powerful it is, it's really funny, and it's yeah. deeply yeah. entertaining. And I feel like, you know, it's one of the advantages to having. Uh, you know, Sherry and, and Michael and I have all done different things, obviously, but we've spent a long time working on musicals, and we're mm-hmm. good at making a show entertaining and having a rhythm. To, it has a musicality to it that I think is um, very effective, and it allows the audience to go to the emotional places because they know that it's going to be offset with, with um, a lot of humor. Last question: What what do you guys think is like the is the secret ingredient for the three of you working together that produces such amazing results? Michael, you go first. Oh my God, trust, love, and I don't know how you put it. It's like a sensibility. There's something. It, there's something just very like when the three of us make something. So far, it's it feels sui generis. You know, it doesn't ever feel like anything I've ever seen before. Not to say it's always great, but it's like it's always going to be its own thing. There's something we, we add, we each add a, a, some kind of ineffable thing that makes it bigger than the three of us. You know, the sum is greater than the, or the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Is that the phrase? Yeah. yeah. That's how it feels. It feels like this great um, alchemy. Mm-hmm. Dick? All of the above. <laughs> and I would also say, you know, there's this a kind of a duality, like is explored the play, that the three of us all have, you know, we all have our own vision. And they're not the same. We see, we under appreciate each other's vision, but we also have complete willingness if, if one of the other two has an idea that initially seems really, like we can't wrap our minds around it and can't fully understand where they're coming from or where they're going with it. We have so much trust and faith in each other and such a commitment to the show being the best thing it can Mm -hmm. be that we're completely willing to go there and like authentically try and, you know, explore it and make it work because we so trust that, you know, if Michael has an impulse or Sherry has an impulse, I think they're both outrageously gifted people. And even if it's an impulse that's baffling me, I, let's try. Let's see what it is, because I might discover inside it something magical that right now I'm just blind to, you know. And when I do discover that, rather than feel like oh, because I didn't think of it, I, I feel delight right. that we discovered it. Like wow, look yeah. at that, yeah. you know. And by the time we're finished at finessing it, everyone has weighed in on it anyway, so it becomes what you said its own thing. Yes. Yeah. You guys, thank you so much for spending the time to talk to me about this. World Inside a Loop is one of the most exciting plays I think I've ever seen. So thank you for having me. Thank you for doing this interview. I know you're very busy. Thank you. Thank you. Bye, guys. Theater People is produced by Patrick Hines and Mike Jensen. Mike edited this episode. Special thanks, as always, to Steve Tipton, Bradley Behan, Keith Rainwater, Eric Emsch, Ellen Marie Marsh, and the staff at Oswald's. 
We'll be back in one week with the first of our two episodes featuring the amazing Tony winner, Laura Benanti. Until then, tell your friends about us. Let's get the theater community talking. Thank you.